Man, I tell you what, that's good stuff. No pressure. Uh, the first thing we believe, I noticed today in the, uh, the tea basket out front, there is a tea that I'm told always runs out on Sunday morning. It's the one called Sweet Dreams. What is that all about? Why are we putting Sweet Dreams tea right before I preach? By the way, his name is Carl, and he likes playing the drums, apparently. He's good. So. <clears throat> My name is Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, and we're finishing up Second uh, John today. Uh, it's been three, this will be the third one, and it's been a pretty powerful concept that John writes in this. Today, I've titled this sermon simply Apologetics. Uh, let me give you a definition of what apologetics are. They are a reasoned, systematic, supported, prudent, compassionate arguments and actions, arguments and actions, in defense of the divine origin of Christ and his words. Apologetics are a reasoned, systematic, supported, prudent, compassionate arguments and actions, in defense of the divine origin of Christ and his words. Here's the passage for today, the last uh, four verses of 2 John. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I like how he leaves some ambiguity there, right? There's a little bit of wiggle room. No, there's not. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. More on that later. Though I have much more to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that your joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So normally we go history, what about man, what did he do, and why did he have to do it? And then we talk about the spiritual or the theology, what about God, what does he say, what does he do? And then we do the devotional. Today I'm going to do it a little bit different. I'm changing the order, and we're going to go with the spiritual first. There is only one way. And so what John teaches us through 1 John, frankly, and 2 John, that apart from the knowledge of and faith in the gospel of Christ, no one can be connected to the Father or eternal life. Now, you might disagree with Jesus, but this is what Jesus says. He says it in John 14, 6. Jesus, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is Jesus talking. And then in Acts, Luke writes in Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John writes in 1 John, one of the passages we studied, no one who denies the Son has the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The same phrase he used in today's passage. And then Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. So let me explain what Jesus is saying and what the disciples are saying. God did not establish the gospel so that other messages of redemption could be preached. He did not come and go through all the trouble of becoming a man, subjecting himself to everything that we are subjected to, calling out his apostles, doing his ministry on earth for three years, suffering at the hands of Pontius Pilate and the leaders of the temple, dying a gruesome death on the cross, shedding his blood. He did not do all of that just so that his church could preach other stories of redemption. However, Jesus' ministry was characterized by love and compassion for those who did not believe and those struggling in sin, those longing for grace, longing for hope, longing for redemption. Jesus' ministry is undeniably full of examples of compassion, kind-heartedness, sacrifice, acceptance. And it is the same thing that he taught to his followers. He saw people like that, people <clears throat> longing for hope, longing for compassion, people longing for redemption and connection with God, people struggling in sin and immorality. He saw them as extremely redeemable. However, our Jesus had very little patience with teachers, the Pharisees, the elite ruling class that tried to distort his message that he gave everything for. See, they taught it was about religion and a list of rules that would ultimately give them authority, power, and prestige and recognition. As a matter of fact, here's what Jesus says to them. This is on the heels of him being kind and compassionate to sinners. He turns to the teachers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You're like beautiful graveyards full of dead people. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. lawlessness. So on the one hand, you have this Jesus who is amazingly compassionate and forgiving and tolerant, right? Then on the other hand, you have this Jesus who is amazingly judgmental and angry and condemning of people who were judgmental, angry, and condemning. It's important to note the patience and compassion for sinners and yet the condemnation and impatience with teachers. People like me, to be honest. That's why one of the things in scripture that we learn is teachers have a higher standard of accountability. 
You think it's fun being a pastor? The scripture says you have a higher level of responsibility. See, this is the, the, this is the example, and I just want to make sure you hear this. This is the example that Jesus set for us when it came to defense and proclamation of the gospel. All right, so let's look at the history. I want to talk about an apostolic injunction. Now, remember, the culture that Jesus had established was here's what would happen. If you were a believer in a town and somebody preaching the gospel were to come into town and do ministry with you and to you and for you, you were to receive them with all the hospitality that you could muster and give them and provide everything that they needed for their ministry. When somebody came into your town, your job was to make sure that they were lacking nothing. Uh, Jesus teaches this in Matthew 10. He's talking to his disciples as he sends them out. Acquire no gold nor silver or copper for your belts. In other words, don't do this ministry to be rich. Uh-oh. Some TV guys just got in trouble. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter in, find out who is worthy in it and stay there till you depart. This is how the disciples were supposed to go and proclaim the gospel. Don't try to get rich. Don't go to a place and take their offerings for six months. Go there. Find a place where the people that in the house love Jesus, you stay with them, they will give you everything you need, and you will do your ministry. But then we have this word injunction. Anybody know what an injunction is? Here's an injunction. An authoritative directive that restrains a person from beginning or continuing an action until further testimony can be heard. The judge says, stop. Whatever you're doing, knock it off until I can hear more information. That's what John does. He says, normally I know the process is that when somebody comes to your town teaching Christ, you invite them into your house and you give them everything they need. Elect lady, stop. Until I get there and talk with you face to face, because what he says, I have a lot more I could write, but I want to see you face to face. Until then, stop receiving people. Don't help them anymore. Because they're not real teachers. So we see John's authority. The first thing to recognize is that John believes he has the authority to offer this injunction, to declare this emergency injunction that he expects to be followed until such time as he meets with this elect lady in person. He felt it was critical enough that he do it in writing ahead of time. And he promises to elaborate more in person once he gets there. And John says, listen, these people are looking to harm you. I know normally you would receive anyone that comes in the name of Jesus. They're not in the name of Jesus. He says in the previous verses, anybody that comes and does not proclaim the same Jesus I have, they have no connection to the Father. So the doctrine that he really was specifically defending and he issued this injunction to protect was the humanity of Christ. 
the doctrine of Christ that was primarily the target of these Gnostic teachers we've been talking about for the last six months at Grace Life as we went through 1st and 2nd John. They taught that Christ was not really a man. He was just a spirit that entered a man after he was born, was there for a little while, and then this spirit left right before Jesus died. And that the humanity of Jesus was merely an illusion. It was an object lesson. He didn't really have to die. He just allowed it to happen to show you that life really isn't real in the physical realm. It's all spiritual. And John says, this is junk. And he felt it critical enough that he do it in writing. Because he says, look, Jesus is not an object lesson. The Gnostics denied the resurrection. They taught the physical world was an illusion, and therefore, so was the suffering of Jesus. He was just doing it as an example. He wasn't really feeling any pain. He's not even a real person. That's the gospel, the part of the gospel he was defending. And he says, listen, don't enable them any longer. Don't receive them. Don't give them what they need. Notice, though, this is important. John is not forbidding the elect lady from contact with non-believers in general. He's not saying, don't talk to anyone that doesn't believe like you. That's what both political parties in America do today. That's not the gospel. He's talking about people who are generally trying to persuade others in the era of spiritual things. He is prohibiting them from giving official sanction to those who deny the faith. He says, don't enable their agenda. He warns not only to not show Christian hospitality to those who teach, but don't even receive them. Don't even talk to them. He's not saying ignore people who don't believe like you. Those you are to love and reach out to and serve and have compassion and grace and mercy because they are seeking connection to something. These people are not seeking connection. They're seeking to fill their belts with gold and silver and prestige and fame, and recognition, and to lead you astray with their own message of redemption. I have a lot more to say to you, but I want to do it face-to-face because we have a relationship. Okay, here's the personal, our turn. I've got a picture of there. This is one of my favorite theologians. His name is J. Gresham Machen. Everything I know about New Testament Greek, I learned from his books. When you first get into Bible college or cemetery, I mean seminary, the first thing you do <laughs> is you are told to buy Machen's Greek books on Greek vocabulary and, and Greek sentence structure and grammar. And it's amazing. Like, he's so brilliant. Greek can be a complicated language, and he makes it so simple. Until book two, then it's really complicated again. (laughs) I learned so much from his commentaries, his explanation. Brilliant man. So late in the 19th century, here's what was going on in the American church. Modern day Gnostics, which really taught the same thing as the ones in 1 John. By the way, nothing new under the sun. The stuff you hear today, it's it's not new, new age. It's old age. 
It's the same stuff. Modern-day Gnostics began to infiltrate mainline American seminaries, like, for example, Princeton. And they had this tendency to begin to teach a rejection of the spiritual, miraculous nature and power of the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel and God's word. They wanted to naturalize everything and make it, well, an object lesson and not a divine message. And by the 20th century, as a natural reaction, because the seminaries like Princeton are now embracing this naturalism of Christ and the gospel, a lot of the pastors affiliated in the denominations began to preach this anti-supernaturalist doctrines. They preached denial of things like the virgin birth, the inspiration of scripture, the resurrection. And great theologians led by guys like J. Gresham Machen fought this trend passionately. I believe that he was one of the leaders of the great American Reformation, that without, without him and guys like him, the American church would have been dead in its tracks in the early 20th century. It became very clear guys like Machen and all those who had gotten their comfort and understanding and their fellowship within these mainline denominations in American church history, it was very clear they were going to have to leave these historic denominations because these denominations decided we're not going back to orthodoxy. There are many throughout church history for 2,000 years that are like Machen, who have sacrificed much for the gospel. The precious capital of believers, some you know about, some you'll never know about until heaven, for 2,000 years, precious capital has been spent and dedicated to this cause, financial, physical, emotional, this cause of preserving the message of the gospel as Christ preached it. People with courage to break off from their beloved institutions that brought them comfort and safety and fellowship. For us to even think about in the American Church of Christ today, to having a debate within Christianity about whether Jesus is a way or the way is a great disrespect to those who for 2,000 years behind us sacrificed everything. Even their very lives. Some you can read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs. By the way, we appreciate you giving your life, but you didn't have to. Jesus is just a way. It's equivalent to saying to those people that have sacrificed, like that Chinese pastor we talked about in here a few weeks ago, it's equivalent to saying to them, your sacrifice is silly. It's foolish. It's so uninformed. However, there is a tension between standing for truth and living in the real world. I get that. So the apostolic injunction requires some wisdom, does it not? Here was the uh, social media campaign for this week. I took this quote. I actually saw it come up on Sunday afternoon, and I was getting ready to preach. And, and it was from a friend of mine that I went to Bible college with. Her dad was actually the, uh, Dr. Eustra was the president of the college I went to. Why are young people leaving the church? By young people, we're talking about people 30 and maybe 35 and younger. Why are so many angry and conflicted? It's because they don't know what they believe. Activism has replaced discipleship. 
Political platform has replaced the gospel. Modernism is slowly but surely erasing Christ, and youth are the victims. I loved that. At first, I called her. I said, listen, Laurie, I'm going to steal that and make it my own and not give you any credit. She says, well, Pastor Joe, if you think that's the right thing to do, then go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. I never told I was going to steal it. I wanted to steal it, but I didn't. Today, we have church people who aren't even sure what the gospel is anymore. And we have some who know what it is, but they're embarrassed by it. It's so narrow. And so we try to make it more palatable, more marketable, more modern. How can anything be more marketable than grace through faith? But somehow we got to try to, you know, cloud it. So more on this Facebook thing a little bit later, but let's just go through a couple things I want to give to you. First of all, if we're going to be good defenders of the gospel, you can't do it from an ivory tower. You better get out in the streets and build relationships like John did with the elect lady. Because listen, a loud voice of dissent without earning the privilege, well, that's just stupid. Do you hear what I said? You can be as loud as you want to for the gospel, but if you don't earn the privilege, you're wasting your time. I mean, how would you feel if somebody had a loud voice of dissent but didn't know anything about you and was telling you where you're, why and how you're wrong? I mean, this concept of the personal side is bolstered when he mentions her in the beginning and her sister in the end. Your elect lady and your niece, your elect sister and your nieces and nephews, they greet you. So before you even become a, a person who can defend and proclaim the gospel, you better build relationships. Do the dirty work. That's what Jesus did. That's what the religious didn't do. The next thing, ask questions. It's okay for you to even doubt sometimes. Trust your God that his gospel can stand up to any scrutiny that you can offer or your friends. You know what? Here's a good phrase for you. If you ever get in a bind, that's a good point. Let me get back to you. That's okay. Your shepherd team and your pastor stand ready anytime to help you. Second Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That can be intimidating. But if you're stumped and you're not sure, it's okay. Stop and say, that's a good one. I don't know. It's better than saying, oh, I don't believe it. You know, I remember uh, there was a phrase when I used to be an independent fundamental separatist, KGB preaching, rock record burning Baptist. There was, um, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, yeah, that might be true, but that's not going to help me minister to someone else. I don't know the answer to that one. Let me get back to you. Because you know why I want to tell you that? Because your gospel can stand up to scrutiny. Scientifically, culturally, philosophically, spiritually. Don't be intimidated by this task. You have the spirit of God, you have the word, and you have a church. You're not alone. Here's the next one. Be prudent. 
Rely upon the spirit within you to determine when and how and the rare moments that it's just not worth it. Because wisdom will enable you to defend the gospel at the right time, at the right place. Here's an illustration for you. In that Facebook post you saw, there was like, you know, like 20 comments. And one popped up from a friend locally in town that I know and that I care about and I like him, but I was very concerned about what he said. He claims to be a Christian. And the question was, why are young people leaving the church? And here's what he wrote. Just a thought. What if some of them are leaving because of what we teach? Namely, that humans are born sinful and that Jesus is the only antidote to our sinfulness. Insomuch as we teach this, we are teaching false doctrine that is offensive to the very nature of the human spirit. Well, yeah, it is offensive because we are sinners. And we love our pride. And he put this comment up there. So immediately I said, okay, what do I do with this? Do I leave it? Because now I'm going to have like 500 comments. I wanted to... Mm, I wanted to... <laughs> I started, listen, let me tell I started using voice to text, and man, it was going off. <laughs> going off. Up, <laughs> oh, backspace, that's not the right word. Shouldn't have said that word. Glad I didn't press send yet, you know, that kind of a thing. It's easy for the church to leave apologetics like this to the pastors and scholars and let them fight it out. But I made a decision when this guy put that up there. I'm going to hide this one. Not because I was afraid of it. I mean, I feel like that with what good men have taught me, I could take it apart bit by bit. And in arrogance, I can tell you today, I could shred it. (laughs) But what's the point? At this point, it becomes unprudent for me to engage and give him access to my platform for this. Kind of like what John said, don't receive them into your house. So I hid the comment. I didn't delete it. I just hid it. He and I could see it. But I didn't want to give him the platform to adulterate what has transformed my life. Like I said, it is easy for the church to depend and, you know, kind of leave this apologetics things to pastors and teachers and scholars. Let us fight it out. But God has not called his church to rely upon others when it comes to defending and proclaiming the gospel. It's important that individuals like all of us take responsibility to defend the gospel with prudence, with wisdom, and with relationships. You, listen, you are supposed to be in the fray. You have relationships with people that need to know in a loving, gracious way the truth of Christ. That's why the last one I tell you is avoid arrogance, but embrace love and grace. See, it's easy to turn the gospel into a debate. Like we feel we must win. If I don't win this Facebook argument on the gospel, the future of all humanity will come crashing down around us. It's not a debate or a fight. If you start to get angry, good sign, you better stop. Don't be arrogant moral majority types that shut people down, kind of like the Pharisees that Jesus was ripping on. That's not grace life. That's not supposed to be his church. 
Because listen, the goal is not in apologetics. The goal is not to win a debate or argument. The goal is to actively, truthfully, graciously reveal Christ and the cross. My hope and my dream and my passion for our church is that we are a loving church, an informed church, a prudent, compassionate, patient, and ready church when it comes to defending the gospel. Put this verse up. Paul says this to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season at all times, be ready. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, coming alongside, discipling, patience. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So if you're here today and your first thought is, well, I believe the gospel, but I don't know much about it. We're here to help. If you're here today, I believe the gospel and I'm going to make sure everybody hears it. That's good, but you better do it with compassion, humility, grace. We're not here to win an argument. We're here to reveal the love of Christ and the cross. Heavenly Dad, your truth is powerful. It's transformative. Keep us from getting in the way with our own agenda. Help us to make sure that when we present the gospel of love and grace, that we do it in a way not to win, but to love. But also give us the courage to not back off and back away from what we know to be true. We don't need to change your message. We're thankful that it is timeless. Thankful for the sacrifice of many for 2,000 years who have given everything they had so that the gospel might prevail. Make us worthy of that. 